So, so what episode is this? Fine. <laughs> is this forty-four? Forty-four. Okay. All right. Good. We should we should start with that once. What episode is this? Fine. Forty-four. Theme music. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everyone. Episode 44, as Fine just reminded me of. And we are back after this long hiatus. And it's been probably the longest hiatus maybe we've ever t- taken, I think. Is that true, Fine? It's definitely true. Yeah. Four months. Yeah. I mean, uh, we were gone for a long time. We had a lot of different things that we were trying to do, both individually and uh um, I think we're kind of done them now, so we're trying to get back into the swing of things, and today might be a, a rough episode for that. Who knows? we got to remember how to speak and, and do these things properly, but we're lucky we've got someone to help us today, and I want to introduce someone you've probably heard before in some of the SpeakPipe messages that we played on the show, and that is Tim Eldred from Los Angeles. Tim, hello. Hello, big time. <laughs> now, how's that for an introduction? That's awesome. Is that us, big time? Yes, and everyone, Tim is a director of the Avengers Assemble cartoon, and he's done many things along these lines. So this is clearly the high point of his career. There is no doubt about it. So thank you, Tim, for joining us, and we appreciate it. <laughs> I just took my time uh, drawing pictures of Captain America and the Hulk if prepared me for a big country podcast (laughs) (laughs) oh it's so cool it's so cool to have you here and uh we've in my family we've admired your cartoon and your work quite a bit so i have a six-year-old a four-year-old who and as you guys know who um who love that stuff too so it's it's awesome and it's it's so cool to see that there are big country fans in all facets of life and existence oh shucks (laughs) so thank you thank you for joining us and um Tim has joined the show for a specific reason here today, and we'll get into that here in a bit. And yeah, some- first I, uh, I I practice a, a special Norwegian greeting just for Svein. I'd like to try it now. Oh, please oh, do. Oh, dear. Min luft puttebot are full of aol. Approved. I need a translation on that. Well, what he did was basically translate the hungarian phrasebook into a norwegian phrasebook and Mon- monty python fans will get that you know i thought the uh the way the the what he was saying there reminded me of, of something from monty python so is that the something is full of eels my hovercraft is full of eels <laughs> that's great that's what, exactly yeah. what i was thinking yeah <laughs> wonderful tim that's a, a a day's work well done <laughs> amazing how just the uh inflection carries over I, I just the inflection i knew something was ending with is full of eels it's incredible but um all right good job tim <laughs> but uh and it's fine what have you been up to in this break that we've had all i can think of is what i've been up to the past two days which is i, I went to sweden for a kiss convention and i was t- <laughs> also was telling kiss. you before we Ugh. started recording yeah we, we, we wouldn't imagine would you I didn't pick up the T-shirt for you, by the way, uh, because I didn't bastard. see it. Oh, Big disappointment. Yeah. But right. uh, the quest goes on. No, I, I left for Friday, and I've been gone two days. This is Sunday evening, my time, and I barely slept. I'm probably still drunk, uh, and I'm really excited to do this, and I'm full asleep right as we're done. <laughs> and I'm the, I'm the least prepared I've ever been for a podcast, so I'm usually in the position Tom is in. 
So the question is, are you in my position of over-preparing and having all the facts? What do you think? Yeah, let's not go into that. <laughs> I think we have Tim here to save the show. Yeah, well, we've already found out that Tim hadn't even gotten the, the subject that we're going to be discussing until just uh, a month or so ago, a couple months ago. So, you know, But it's been thoroughly digested since then. Well, that's true. Yes. There's, there's no doubt that it has, considering what you've been doing. But um, excellent. Well, we're glad to be back either way. and uh, We are. Four guess- months feels like a long time, and it is a long time. But to our credit, we said we'd be gone a long time. So this isn't like, uh, we'll be back soon, and then cobwebs and uh, the dust flying and nothing and then um we're back please forgive us you know this time we said it damn it but you know we we only had like a couple of people who said when are you coming back so maybe yes. maybe we should have stayed away <laughs> i gotta say those those steel town episodes were incredibly taxing mentally yeah, <laughs> and, uh, i think they probably wore out the listeners as well because as i said you know n- not many people were saying when are you coming back when are you coming back well so, quite a few have said it but no. not lately. I think we, we set the expectations right in terms of we're going to be gone for a while. But uh, Easter is coming up, and people wondered if they would get Easter egg surprises from us, and here we are. Easter egg surprises. Wow. Yeah. Well, I just want to mention that the um, I, I really appreciated the Steel Town deep dives for giving me an opportunity to, to think deeper about those songs. Oh, thanks, man. Uh, yeah, for years and years, I've just been listening to them I won't say robotically because it's never a robotic process to put that album on, but um, over time you just get sort of inured to it and you don't really think too much about what uh, the words mean, but when you actually require yourself to sit down and interpret them, uh, it activates parts of the brain that you don't usually use when you're listening to music, and I, it was great to have the chance to do that. And I think I... Mm. I think I figured out a few new things about those songs that have been companions for years, which keeps them interesting. That's fantastic. Yeah, and I did too. I mean, and I was just like you, Tim, listening to that song for many years, uh, or that song, that album, over the last many years, it kind of got to that point where, as you say, you don't want to use the word robotic, but it was something that you would just put on and listen to and not really delve into it that much more deeply. So when we knew that we had to finally do this, it was really kind of daunting, but also very... uh, fulfilling in a, in a lot of ways to go through it again and i'm really proud of those episodes i think i think our podcast episodes have just as many metaphorical overdubs as the steel town album itself <laughs> that's, that's probably true <laughs> but just you know like an un- and an ogre it has layers <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> excellent and uh i learned something uh some stuff too and in fact one of the things was i felt like a complete moron about is that um in Rain Dance, I was asking about the the phrase "his master's voice." What does that mean? His master's voice, and someone said, a couple of people actually emailed me and said, "Tom, that's uh, that's what HMV stands for, his master's voice." And then there's of course the famous painting of the RCA record label, the dog looking at the uh, at the phonograph, and that's entitled "his master's voice," which I never actually knew. So that line, "Hold me like his master's voice," not not to jump back into another Steel Town deep dive here, but that line from that song actually means more to me now from doing those podcasts because now I know what he meant by that when he says, "Hold me like his master's voice." He's talking about that dog being transfixed by hearing his master's voice coming through the phonogram. So, uh, mm-hmm. and I have one too, if I may. Yeah, from uh, when we discussed the song Steel Town, and there's a line saying, uh, "We cast a flame and it burned so blue," and of course, people in the UK were quick to point out that the blue flame is the symbol of Margaret Thatcher's party. 
mm. her political party. That's right. So, yeah. so, so, you know, neither Tom nor myself are Brits, so we don't know. And we, there are things like that we wouldn't know because we're not from there. But people will tell us, and we're happy to put it in like here when we can and say, yeah, we learned something too, and you guys can definitely teach us as many things as as, as we could possibly show you i mean that goes both ways and that's what i like about this it's really good me too fantastic and i think that came from doug mitchell so props to you doug yeah yeah thank you appreciate it yeah and what i've been doing is finally i know finishing my album I was very thrilled to finally finish this thing. It was um, just a long ton of work uh, to, to do it, and mainly because of so many other things going on. So it was just a really uh, kind of marathon type of thing to finally finish. So I kind of went by the the whole an inch is a cinch, a yard is hard principle, just doing a little bit as I could, and it finally ended and finished. And I'm real happy with it. So I'm looking forward to sharing that with, with you guys too. So if you're interested, you'll see some links to it, and hopefully you'll like it. Okay, so Tim, what have you been doing in our long hiatus? What have you been up to? <laughs> <laughs> well, as you mentioned before, I, I work on a cartoon show. Um, you may have heard of it. You know, those yeah, superhero guys. I, yeah, it seems like they, they could really be promoted a little bit better, though. It's, they don't have much of an audience, and I think they really deserve a bigger one. Right, right. Well, um, <laughs> during the time the, uh, the Steel Town episodes came out, I was... Uh, I was between seasons. They keep me on at the at the uh, animation studio at Marvel to work on post production. But then mm-hmm. our third season got underway in January, so work has been ramping up again. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, I, I always love seeing a new uh, podcast episode come through because I know there's something to keep me in my chair for a, an hour and a half or so. <laughs> That's so great. <laughs> you know, I remember a, a post that you made once. It might have been on your personal page, probably was, but uh, I just thought it was so great. You said something like. Uh, Today we are trying to figure out uh, what's going to be happening on Monster Island or something. I, I forget exactly how you worded it, but you were like, it's, right. a, it's, a good, it's a good job to have. And I thought, yep, that sounds like a great job. <laughs> oh, great. Yeah, Tim, Tim uh, has another project he's been working on that we're going to get into in a second. And that's really the reason that why we're here. And it's also going to be the reason why we're going to be here on the next show, which is going to be coming up very quickly after this one. But um, before we jump into that, we would be remiss if we didn't at least mention the facts since it just happened today. And this happens to be when we're sitting down to do this show. Uh, Big Country has been active again. We know they've been active on the road. They've been doing their kind of greatest hits tour, best of Big Country tour. I can't remember exactly what it's called, but um, been doing basically after they finished the Steel Town tour, they're back on the road doing really cuts from everything. And um, what I found really kind of cool and, and, brave is that they've actually been opening with Pearl Man, which is a pretty interesting and uh, cool choice. But they've also been busy on the new music front. And just just today, they've released both a video and a song for their new tune called Love is the Law.
desert sand Watch the caravan on trial Over dusty trails Lies the broken wheels on fire Swine and I both agree at least that we haven't heard the song enough yet where we feel like we want to delve into any kind of really deep review of it. I think Swine just really heard it maybe once, part of it once, since it's been back. I heard a minute while we waited for your connection to restore. Yeah. (laughs) I've been home less than an hour from traveling all weekend, so this is really fresh. And I don't want to be in the same situation for All Laid Down. I feel we, we talked about that a little too soon. And for the record, I, I love that song now. I think we all agree that that's a grower. It's not really a, a grabber. I'm using Tim words here. But uh, this song, I've just seen other people's comments. It seems to be very instant, like or not like. But that's all I really can say, other people's impressions. Yeah. So, so we'll definitely get into this at a later stage as well. Yeah, we'll review, we'll review this song a little bit more down the road, but we did want to at least mention it. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's definitely one of those tunes that is not – it's not the big country of of the eighties period. It's not like the big country from the the Holy Trinity period by any stretch of the imagination. So if you're one of those fans who kind of I'm sort of in that boat where every time you hear a new big country song is coming, you're ter- putting it on and you're kind of thinking, I kinda hope to hear that big huge sound again. You gotta get over that. You gotta get over that and be ready to accept what what's coming. But what they I think what they've done is is cool and I'm it's really grown on me quite a bit. Uh, the first time I heard it, I, I I wasn't sure how to digest it. The second time, I thought, okay, and I'm kind of getting into this now. And then the third time, I liked it even more. Um, it's more of a straightforward type of harder rock tune, and I think uh, I think I heard someone describe this, and I think it's it this way, and I think it's probably pretty uh, a pretty good way to describe it. It's it's kind of like the stuff that Bruce and Jamie had done solo, set to an electric full band. It's kind of got that feel to it. Um, and in fact, I think one of the songs that they had done called Lay the Coin on My Tongue, or maybe it was just called Lay the Coin, I think that was kind of the basis for some of this too. But um, Bruce actually sings it, which is interesting. And Simon features prominently in the video, so that's no reflection on Simon. But uh, Bruce is singing the tune, and I, for one, am glad to hear Bruce singing a, a big country song. I think a lot of people have said that they love Bruce's voice, and uh, I'm one of those people at least. So I think hearing them trade off will be a pretty interesting uh, scenario that they can, they seem to be uh, willing to do now. So again, I got to listen to it more before I can give like a really deep uh, review of the thing, but it's, it's definitely another grower. I think it's growing on me already after a few listens and it's, it's very well produced and hard edged. And I like that a lot. What do you think about it, Tim? My first impression is that it's, it's somewhere in between a Buffalo Skinner song and uh, something off of one of Bruce's own albums. Yep. Um, it's got that sort of uh, twangy guitar feel, which uh, which I like, and which uh, Big Country seemed to experiment with for a little while. Um, but it's uh, it's hard to accurately judge these things without context. It's a new experience for me to hear uh, album cuts before. I get an album. Yes. In the past, it's always been album first, and then individual cuts stand out, and then singles come along, and you you get this overarching context to a body of work, and each song has a place or a level within that context. So far, with this new body of work, we only have two songs. We don't really know what the intention is in terms of a of a whole uh, album as it takes shape. So it's 
it's hard to judge whether these are meant to be tentpole songs or album tracks between the tentpole songs. Yeah. So you have no choice but to take it on its own merits. And and for me, I think this is an interesting departure. Probably not necessarily the the main uh, the mainstream course that they're going to be on. Yeah, I think that's a great way to look at it. it. It kind of takes me back, and I think I said this when we did the All Lay Down uh, discussion as well, is it kind of takes me back to the uh, to the early 90s when they were releasing songs like Save Me and Heart of the World without those ever being a part of anything other than a single release. But kind of the, the difference here that I find interesting and a little dis, dis, uh, disappointing, maybe is too strong a word, but I really want to hear or at least have access to a great quality version of this that I can download and that I can listen to in my car, listen to on a stereo. I'm not one of these guys who really enjoys listening to music on my computer or on my phone. Um, and that seems to be like the only, I know you can, you, you can set these up to play through your stereo system, et cetera, but I haven't rigged anything up like that. So I think it's kind of interesting that the last two songs they've released really have only been re- released as a video uh, and they haven't even released the actual audio of the song. And I'm wondering why that is. I'm, I'm curious. I'd like to ask them about that. Um, I would love it if they would also make these things available for download. I would happily pay for it. And I think most every fan would. Um, it would be great just to have the, the song itself that you could take with you and listen to in full fidelity. So that would be my one gripe, I guess, about the release uh pattern of these last two songs is that i would like to have the opportunity to to download them and play them and and uh, listen to them i think all the big country fans are really old school i think they want cds i don't think uh, big country fans are necessarily part of that new breed that downloads songs or are happy to have them online in any form uh, i think just just put it out there or at least say you will in the future so we don't have to fear that these songs will go the same way as the original version of Angel and Promises, which yeah. seems now to be totally resigned to never appearing on anything. Yeah. And I always was really happy with that first version. So, um, yeah, that, that, that's it. That's all, that's all I have to say at this point. But, <laughs> yeah. but we'll, right. we'll definitely get back to it. Okay, so we'll talk about that more later down the road as we all sit with it a little bit longer. But um, what we're here really to do today is to talk about something that really – Kind of this whole podcast, this whole episode really sprang up very quickly. We were um, we were initially planning to do just a very brief chat with Tim about this project that he's devised and undertaken, and it's almost finished, and and then play the whole thing. But uh, in speaking with Svein, he had the idea. He thought, well, it, this is about the book, a certain chemistry that every big country fan is, should be pretty familiar with. And I think he rightly said, why don't we have a whole episode about that and talk about it because it is a book that's really been a part of most of our experiences, whether we've actually had the thing or not. I think most of us have heard of the book. And for many of us, it's been like the one big source that we've turned to quite a bit to get information about the band and get information about their personal lives. And I know when I first got it, um, it was a, it was a huge deal because the internet wasn't around. And this was like the, this book really was the only source that I had at, th- at the time to, to learn about a lot of these things and about the, the backgrounds of some of these guys. So we're going to be talking about the book, A Certain Chemistry, today, and it's all going to be leading up to the next episode, which is going to be something that I think is really, really cool. And this was all Tim Eldred's idea. And Tim, why don't you take it from there and really kind of explain what this is before we actually talk about kind of the book in, in a general sense. 
tell everyone what this project is that we're going to be unveiling here in the next episode. It is a DIY audiobook. And it came about because um, for uh, as long as I've known about you guys, I keep I kept hearing the title of this book dropped uh, over and over, and it would come up a lot on uh, the Facebook page. Yep. And I I didn't even know it existed until uh, I got into the the circle here of conversation. Um, never thought I would have a chance to get a copy because I. I've been hearing about how you know copies on uh, Amazon or or uh, eBay are going for gigantic, ridiculous sums of money. <laughs> yeah. Um. So I thought, wouldn't uh, wouldn't it be nice if there was a way for people like me to get access to this book, um, in a uh, in an audio form, if the paper form wasn't available? And so ideas clicked together in my head, and I thought, well, hey, why don't we get a copy? You know, because obviously people have copies, and do a uh, a recording of it. <laughs> and at the time, I had no idea what that encompassed because I didn't know how big the book was. Um, I did recently just finish reading Alan Glenn's bio of Stuart Adamson, which of course is very text heavy and photo light. Right. So when uh, when C.J. Wade sent me a PDF of this book uh, the day after I suggested it as a project. Um, I was quite surprised to find out that it's photo-heavy and text light, mm -hmm. which actually made it an ideal candidate for this sort of treatment because, uh, you know, the Alan Glenn book would probably take several hours to listen to, and this is much faster and shorter and lighter, and um, it has uh, a lot of opportunities for variety, which makes it more interesting to listen to, even if you've read it over and over. And so it was just dumb luck that this turned out to be a, a, a perfect fit for that format. Yeah, that's great. It was a great idea. I remember you said it, you brought it up on the on the uh, Facebook page, and you kind of said, because I think we had made it pretty clear that we were going to go on a hiatus, and you said that this would be an interesting thing to fill the gap. Well, it didn't quite fill the gap because we're kind of coming back now, but still, it's it was it was such a great idea. And I have to admit, when you said it, I thought, that sounds really cool, but I can't imagine how that's going to that's going to work or what it's going to sound like but you've been uh, I've been working with Tim kind of in tweaking the final version and kind of uh, normalizing the levels and that kind of thing and in listening to it from the very first uh, few minutes that I listened to it it just all clicked and I thought this is fantastic it sounds so cool and um, mm -hmm. we're going to talk about the specifics of, of what you went through to, to put all this together here in a bit but I just uh, I'll just suffice it to say that a lot of different people from the board from different countries participated in it. And uh, it's, it has a great flavor to it. I think that I think everybody is going to really enjoy listening to, even if you've read the book over and over again, which I have done hearing people read it with various accents. And uh, it's just, it's just a very cool, it's a very cool uh, effect and it, it brings those things to life. And it's, it's really interesting. I know it's fine. You've heard it too, right? You've, you've heard the I've thing. Heard I sent. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I will preface this by, by saying something that I um, I wasn't negative to the idea, but I thought, how can this be good? We're, we're, we're dividing the book up and giving people chapters to read, and it's going to be varying degrees of good because people are varying degrees of readers. So I was kind of, well, waiting and seeing how I felt about it. But when I heard the results, 
I was really positively surprised. So if people felt like me, is this going to be worthwhile? It is worthwhile. It's really well done. It's really smartly divided. Uh, it has a voice. It's greatly it has divided. A tone. Oh, will you stop? <laughs> <laughs> and people, this is the fourth one today. <laughs> we had we had several of those before we started the episode. Uh, sorry, sorry. Please, please, please stop. Gosh, I need, I need a longer break. Quit setting me up and I'll stop. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to send you a giant plug to put over your head. <laughs> okay. Yeah, the one I have now is, is clearly too small. But uh, no, but... Uh, not to take away from the point that I, I really liked what I heard. And uh, if people were sitting on the fence about how they felt about this, I think you'll be won over. Really, this, uh, this worked fine. And uh, this is a project I will go to from time to time and just put on and listen to, and it, it will work. I agree. And, it, it, you know, I will even say that I found the thing very moving at times to listen to because when you when you hear the different people reading it and you feel the emotion coming through and people... Everyone did a great job with the reads, I think, and um, they they put their own personality to it, and they 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 try to do justice to the words. And I just think it's so great that this fan community could put something like this together, and it's really indicative, and it really reflects back on the the passion that people have. Yeah. So, thank Absolutely. you, Tim, for this for this idea and for spearheading all this. It's it was a great idea, and it's coming to great fruition here, I think. And mm-hmm. um, and we're gonna we're gonna talk to you here about it in a minute as far as what you did because to put this together because that'll lead up into the the next episode. But let's just take a few minutes here or however long it takes to talk about this book. Now I know that we've we've each got this book. Uh, the perspective we each have on this book is going to be different because I'm one of those who bought the book not when it came out but back in the '80s. I think um, I was thinking about this the other day and I'm looking at my copy now. It's incredibly well worn but it's still in great shape i mean they maybe they made books better back then i don't know but nothing's falling apart it's great quality and uh it's fine you got the book um sent to you from oliver hunter is that correct just not too long ago i got the book from oliver end of uh, last year that was the actual book but yeah. the first time i got the book was a photocopy and I got that in 1995. A fan oh. from online sent it to me. Wow. So, so I've had the book and I've read it and I've lived with it. And it's, it's a good copy of it. So but that's fine. But I've never really had the book itself mm-hmm. until recently. So thank you, Oliver, again for that. That was uh, really, really appreciated. So I sit here with my pristine copy, much better quality than Tom's. <laughs> and I leave through it and I smile and I think of Tom's shoddy copy but mine is full of so much more love <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> exactly but the, the the interesting thing is like you said you you've had the actual book since the 80s and i'll dare say i have i've had mine since the mid 90s and as we just heard tim just got his sent to him <laughs> literally months ago so so we each have different perspectives here in terms of when we picked it up which uh which is kind of interesting. Yeah. So maybe time to start with you. You picked it up first, back in the eighties. We didn't have so much information on big country as we do now. Yeah. Well, I mean, I remember I was in college at the time, and uh, I think I've mentioned this habit that I had back then of going to this particular record store. It was a place called Record and Tape Traders. Some of you might remember that because I think it was a national chain. But it was a great, it was a great store, and it was in this college town, and they always had these these great import uh, albums and. A friend of mine, my best friend and I would uh, would make this trek. It was like a maybe a couple mile walk from our 
dorm. And we would walk up there at least once a week and see what was out. And I remember going up there once and seeing um, they had a great book section as well. And I saw the book, A Certain Chemistry. And this was probably around the time that Peace in Our Time came out because I remember I bought Peace in Our Time there. And I don't think I bought Peace in Our Time the same time I bought this book. In fact, I think I remember seeing the book and being a poor college student, I had already committed to buying a certain album or something. And I didn't, didn't have the money to buy this at the time. So I remember making a mental note that next time I go back here and get some money, I'm going to buy this book because I can't wait to read it. And I think I even read a good portion of it you know, standing there and somebody was probably looking at me funny because it was a small store and they didn't want you to do that. But anyway, to see a big country book was uh, just amazing because, as I said, and as we all know, the Internet was not a thing really back then at all. And I was starved for big country information. And it wasn't like big country at that time was completely at a nosedive and out of the whole um, mindset of an American. I mean, they were still kind of a band that was known and fairly well-known. The Seer was kind of popular in America, but obviously their popularity was dwindling. And when Peace in Our Time came out, it really started to take a nosedive. So we were kind of in that in that position at the, at the time where Big Country was still a known commodity, but it wouldn't be too much longer where they would really be drastically overtaken by other bands. So I was still flying the flag high and proud, and uh, to find this book was just a great, uh, just a great kick, a great jolt to see that someone had actually taken the time to put out this kind of a book about Big Country. So I remember buying it, bringing it back to my dorm room, and uh, just really devouring the thing. And, and Tim, as you said, it is, it's not a text-heavy read, but there were so many things about it that I really enjoyed. And like I said, I mean, I, I didn't know much of anything about the band, really, as far as their, their I'd read interviews and things like that. So obviously I knew something about each one of them, but mainly Stuart. But to get the uh, the background on each guy and to read about their upbringing and to read uh, the different um, stories about the making of the first two albums. And, and keep in mind, this book only went up to post Steel Town and just after Restless Natives, I think it, it talked a little bit about Restless Natives, the soundtrack, but uh, this came out before The Seer came out. So I got it after the fact, and I'd be very curious to, to hear maybe from some other perspectives of people who got it right when it came out. But So it was, I was a little late, and some of the information was a little bit uh, dated when I got, at the time I got it. But um, it's still a fascinating book, and it's written by John May, put together by John May. And I was telling you guys offline before we started that uh, I found John May on Facebook. He is on there. I, there are a couple of John Mays that came up in the search, but I found one that was mutual friends with Ian Grant. So I said, this has to be the guy. And sure enough, just briefly looking at his Facebook page pretty much clarified the fact that it was the John May. So I was hoping maybe a miracle would happen and uh, he would accept my friend request and I could convince him to join us for this discussion today. But uh, as of as of now, he has not. We'll see maybe if that changes. But I do think he did a great job putting this book together. Um, I love the way that it's put together. I love the, uh, the the different approaches he's he's taken and, and the different um, things that he shares and the way it's structured. And uh, I also love the fact that uh, one of my favorite things about the book were the, was the fact that he had all these different comments from other artists. And we can talk about maybe some of those because some of them are really, really interesting. Not all of them positive either. But uh, anyway, that that's how I finally that's how I came across the book and, and got into it in the first place. And it's something that just stayed with me over the years and. 
you know, yes, Svein's copy is very pristine, I'm sure, because it's probably in a sealed plastic container, sealed plastic bag, barely opened, never cracked. I'm sure you're still reading your photocopy version. Mine has been with me many years, different places, pages turned lovingly. Bitter that doesn't become you. <laughs> I think Spine is uh, is very intelligently protecting its resale value. I think you're right. Yeah, and, and the last time I checked it, on Amazon, you can buy these things. Um, a used copy was going for like $165. So, man, wow. I, I wish I had invested in these back then and bought multiple copies. But I'm glad Oliver sent me his before he he checked up on that. <laughs> I'm sure <laughs> he knew. I, I know uh, he's probably well aware. Well, this has been a thing for a long time. I remember I've seen people talk about this for a long time that these these books sell for just exorbitant prices. Yeah. So it's not a, a unique case either. A lot of these vintage things do, and this is one book that is not likely to be printed up because it's seen as out of date. I don't know if out of date is the is the right description though, because I would say it's incomplete. And uh, it's yeah, a book that's that a better be way to put it. On. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and uh, it's not just incomplete because it came out as early as it did. It's uh, it's not a chronologic account of everything from their individual births and up to when their paths joined and up to that point. It's very selective in what it includes. So it does have the early days for each, and it does have how they met. It does have the early days of the band. It mentions the first U.S. tour. It mentions uh, some of the problems that came with Steeltown. But there's big holes, and tellingly... There's not almost a single story from the recording of Steeltown and the writing of Steeltown. Apart from what little you get from a quote from uh, Steve Lillywhite. He mentions an episode that it was troublesome, they were bored, uh, Bruce put on a, a dress and they laughed for half an hour. That's all you get from the recording of Steeltown. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it's a fun little story, but it's a hole in the book. So it's not like Well, for that matter, they accounts. don't talk much about the recording of The Crossing either. There's more... But yes, I would agree. There, it's it's lacking. It's not a fo- it's not a book that focuses on that side of things. It focuses right. more on the people and their experiences. So you have much more from the crossing tour of America when they first went over and the wacky stuff they they saw, and uh, that is the strength in terms of having this book out early. You get more the wide-eyed uh, accounts of what they saw, what they went through, and if they did the same thing now. They would probably tell the same stories, but they would tell them differently just because they are more seasoned veterans in terms of music business and having traveled over multiple times. So incidentally, I I would love to see a book just about the 2013 U.S. tour, those three months, one book, a certain chemistry size book just on that tour. Uh, I'd pay pay the the Amazon prices just for that. Uh, But uh, no, I think. The book is, is is really cool in terms of what it does focus on and what it does tell us. And I think uh, we're probably all going to mention favorites. I'll tell mine right away. And that was the revelation that when Mark and Tony met, they did not get along. And in fact, Tony didn't really like Mark at all. And it's back to when Mark auditioned for uh, for Simon Townsend's band. And they were replacing their drummer. And... Uh, Tony pretty much told Mark, well, it's no use coming down. Uh, you're not the right guy or we, uh, we have enough candidates. And, well, I'll still come down. 
and he came down and then he said, well, you have to come in last. And what happened <laughs> yeah. was he was sitting outside listening to the other people audition. So when his turn came, he had learned the songs, or at least the two first songs. So he came in and played them beautifully. And that impressed them. And uh, eventually Tony was wound over and it was a story they would laugh about later. But that was a very interesting little early tale that I don't think has been retold anywhere else. So that's, that's the kind of stuff you get in a certain chemistry, like these individual personal tales of, of how they met and, and what they experienced, really. Yeah. yeah, and I think the real value of uh, the book coming out when it, when it did is that those stories were preserved with a freshness that you wouldn't get yeah. if they had uh, sat down in later years to recount all those things. Definitely. And you couldn't even get yeah. Bono to comment on Big Country today as you could back then. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so we'll get to that comment in a minute. Which I find interesting, but uh... in the interest of uh, some context, I'd like to to share with you some notes I put together yesterday. Um, I had the publication data as 1985. Didn't know the month, but I assumed that it was probably in late summer or fall because it mentions Live Aid, which happened in July. Mm, yep. And Live Aid has obviously had been in the past because it was spoken of in past tense. But to give a uh, a broader picture, uh, Steel Town came out October of 84. Steel Town singles started to be released in November and January. Restless Natives re- was recorded in January and February. The movie was released in June. And the soundtrack took another year to come out. So uh, the soundtrack itself was not available as a separate component yet. Mm. Uh, Live Aid happened in July. And um, my assumption was that this is uh, this must have been published late summer or fall, because it mentions an upcoming uh, Roger Daltrey concert in December, and said that uh, they were gearing up to start recording the third album, which was also December. That yeah. makes that makes total sense. Yep. The the thing that I really love that um, John May did in this book was getting all these peers of the band some of some of them are peers some of them really are not peers to comment on big country i i just always mm-hmm. have personally found that kind of thing fascinating to hear people talk about something that i like people that i also respect or at least am aware of in, in the same uh field talking about something else or someone else that i like so when i see uh these different artists talking about big country i found it just fascinating to read and i would my especially pete townsend because i'm a big who fan and uh, I, I always knew that obviously he had a connection with the band, having Tony and his band and Mark playing with him. I knew he was aware of them. But when I read how kind of passionately he talked about Stuart Adamson in his section, I just remember being really impressed by that because I thought, wow, Pete Townsend obviously is a fan of Big Country. That's really cool. He's not he's not just saying little asides here about the band. Like, oh, yeah, the band Tony got in really seems to be interesting. He was talking about Stuart in very serious specifics and he was even talking about what he considered to be the reasons for the quote-unquote failure of the steel town album so um i i found stuff like that really fascinating and I, the one guy that i really <laughs> enjoy his uh his comment from a completely different uh mindset is this guy jazz coleman of killing joke are you guys fam- familiar with his comment tim probably would be more so since he's heard this already many times yes yeah. i didn't know anything about jazz coleman but um he's he stands apart <laughs> yeah no, I got to read a little bit of it because it's just such a 
oh man, what a what a prick comment. <laughs> just, and like you, I didn't know anything about this guy either. I remember when it came out, I was not a fan of Killing Joke. I'd heard of them. I don't think I could think of one tune from them even right now. But um, he says, "Big country, indisputable proof of the formula principle applied to music consumerism, tortuous mediocrity executed with a necessary precision, no inspiration, average lyrical content combined with archetypal motions within a relatively well-performed act." Anyway, he goes on and on, and at the end, he says, "I would have them electrocuted." <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> that's my favorite quote of the book just from a, from an entertainment uh aspect and i think you that can't, you can't take it seriously can you well I, i'm sure he really did hate them but no you can't really take it seriously um, yeah, i'm pretty sure the band would laugh at that comment well they, they, i'm just gonna assume it with, he said that on opposite day yeah you're probably right you're probably right <laughs> but that does kind of get us into another area of this book which i'm interested in your thoughts on it they they are not shy, and we mentioned this when we talked about Steeltown, and we read some reviews from this. They are not shy at all in this book of of putting in a whole host of, of negative reviews of Steeltown specifically. And, of course, this comment from uh, Jazz Coleman, it's kind of a shot against them. There are a couple of others that are a little bit negative about them in this book, but nothing along those lines. But some people who say they've gotten a little samey or I haven't really liked anything they've done since The Crossing and I was I was surprised. I remember even at the time, and I saw someone else on our page say this. They were like, uh, "It was kind of surprising to see them put so many negative things in this book." And uh, I'm curious how you guys feel about that. Well, well, for my part, I think it makes the book more honest. Yeah, yeah, it does. And uh, it's it's refreshing. Even if you don't agree with the comments, it's refreshing to to have that additional context and to know that, yeah, the, it wasn't a hundred percent acceptance. And, you know, most, um, publicity magazines that come out for bands or movies or whatever are very carefully edited so that you only get the most positive opinion possible. Mm -hmm. And the fact that this broke from that, I think is another example of how authentic the, the whole, uh, experience was for everybody. Um, I would guess that if you looked for other magazines that were contemporaries to this one, uh, you might not see that level of uh, honesty. Um, and if, uh, this was obviously produced in cooperation with the band and the band's management. Yeah. And the fact that they allowed that to go through meant that uh, they probably didn't feel threatened by it. Exactly. That's kind of how I took it as well. And uh, it was such a, it is really such a brave thing to do. And, um, I, if not brave, then just, as you say, uh, just uh, an unaffected thing to do. And I think Stewart has said that in past interviews, that he was totally confident in what he was doing, and if somebody didn't like it, it didn't affect uh, how he felt about it. But uh, I, I find it really interesting to and funny to, to read these different comments and these different uh, bad reviews. So I, I appreciated the fact that they put them in there. There almost all are too many of them, though, for my taste. I mean, I remember when we were talking about Steeltown, I kept going through like, isn't there one good Steeltown review in here? There's like one. And all the rest were like, oh, it sounds all the same. And here we are back again with the Ebo and the one trick pony. So <laughs> yeah, certainly, I think uh, if they were going to put anything in there, I would put uh, the Rolling Stone interview, which was very positive indeed. But it, it was also very long. And they just put snippets. And I would not be surprised if they picked the, the most negative snippets to make a point out of it. Because uh, you used the word brave, and I think that describes it very well. And I'm going to use a reference that all the Brits will get. And 
and the Yanks will not, where there is this British TV show called Yes, Minister, and Yes, Prime Minister. <laughs> and whenever the, uh, the head of administration wanted to scare the Prime Minister from doing something he disagreed with, he would say, oh, Prime Minister, this is the bravest thing you've ever done. And <laughs> then they would panic and say, really? And <laughs> that, that, was a, that was a strong deterrent. <laughs> but, uh, but in this case, uh, it, it, it's the bravest thing I've seen any band done. But I, I, I've never I, seen I anything like it. I don't care. No, I, and if I were in, in their place, I don't know if I would have liked to do it. I, yeah, I kind of feel the same way. I might, have, I might have put in one or two, but I would have been at least like, uh, come on, can we get a few better reviews in yeah, here? Yeah, uh, it would definitely be more balanced if I did it. I, I'm fairly certain. Yeah. So for them to just not give a toss about it, it's, it's really a great credit to them, and it's, uh, it strengthens the book. And, you know, it also kind of strengthened the fan base, I think. I mean, I can only guess about that. But, I mean, for me, I remember reading those things. It made me even more uh, fanatical to their cause and, and, and kind of like, you bastards, how can you say this? What's wrong with you? It made me more galvanized to uh, defending big country and, and oh, yeah. flying that well, big well, country flag. And on the other hand, you have the people buying this book are not going to read this, these reviews and be affected by them. Right, exactly. They will feel just like us. Yeah. Nobody's going to put down this money to buy this book and then think, oh, I'm just reading this book and maybe I shouldn't buy any of their albums. I wasn't aware. <laughs> now I know. <laughs> so, I thought I hated them before, but now. <laughs> now after buying and reading their entire autobiography or biography, now I know I'm not going to buy an album. I will buy the next one just to find out how much they really suck. <laughs> Well, I'm curious. Uh, I've kind of mentioned some of my own, but I'm curious if you guys had any uh, comments from any of these other people that you found uh, that really stood out. If you can think of it offhand. I was more about who said something. Yeah. So uh, I didn't expect to find a quote from Lemmy. Yeah, but, uh, that was funny, wasn't it? But he was not interviewed for this book. I actually recognized that quote from uh, from a different interview. So that was probably just taken from it. As uh, big country were lifted, and he would not be the kind of guy to go out and really investigate and dig deeper into what they produced later. He was really exposed to the crossing, and yes, he found he liked it, and yes, he used the same quote. But I don't think he really explored them, so I don't take that too uh, too heavily. Yeah, yeah. One one I really liked was the Alice Cooper quote because he went on about seeing them at the Grammys and. Um, and Not understanding a word. Yeah, and of course we all know we all know the story of the band, the early incarnation of the band being tossed off the Alice Cooper tour after like two shows, and uh, it was interesting to hear Alice Cooper actually talk about that, and he didn't even realize that it happened. So it kind of shows how out of touch he was with the with opening acts and that kind of thing when he was out on the road. But um, yeah, his, this was 1983, so at that time he did have a heavy drug habit. Yeah, and he was he was well really into alcohol as well as. Yeah, from when I can remember a big alcoholic, but yeah, um, I love how he's talking about just nodding his head, not understanding a single word they were saying, and he just kept saying, "Oh yeah, great, great song, great." He says, "I just kept grinning at them." <laughs> it's a really a fun story, but the, you gotta wonder when was he asked for the quote for this book because he cleaned up up about eighty five, eighty six, right as this book came out. Mm. So was it a fresh quote or did it come from his? alcohol fueled years was it big country's fault that he didn't understand them <laughs> so yeah, yeah. well did the, the band often forgot the band did drunk? have subtitles i remember on mtv back when they first uh, appeared on the scene they actually had subtitles on their interviews here in america 
So right. um, I know a lot of people. Have, yeah, exactly. Along with Ozzy Osbourne. <laughs> right, right, right. But I, I am curious what you guys think of the Bono quote. I wanted to talk about that for a minute. What do you think about the Bono quote in this book? I need to look it up. Let's see. Let me leave through my pristine copy. <laughs> well, it was obviously written at a time or, or spoken at a time when Bono was, um, was really taken with Stuart. And his, uh, the, the quality of his guitar playing. Um, in fact, I've got it here. This, this is the one that really stood out to me. Stuart Adamson is an anti-hero. He doesn't use his guitar like a phallus, pushing it into the front rows of the people. That's something he and the Edge have in common, though Stuart plays with three strings and the Edge plays with two. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting because that comes at a time, too, when... Um, Sadly, at a time that's no more, but when Big Country and U2 and The Alarm were considered peers, standing right alongside each other. And um, I always found, even at the time I remember reading this, and I was a huge U2 fan, probably even more than Big Country at a time back in like 85, uh, 86, eight, maybe even 87. Uh, I was just really into U2 and their early stuff. Um, and I remember even at the time when I read this thinking, Come on, Bono. This is about big country. Can you can you just talk more about big country? Because it seemed like every sentence that he has in here, he somehow refers it back to you too. It always comes back to you too. Like, well, if I had to write something, it would either be about uh, you know um, a thesis about Stuart Adamson or The Edge or something different altogether. I can't remember exactly how he worded it, but every every compliment that he pays big country he's always bringing it back to you too and it's just like us we we are we are also pig-headed and we also have the best football players and i just remember thinking come on bono you're not doing yourself a favor with all these people who say you're uh, a bit narcissistic <laughs> <laughs> i guess for him it's pretty good yeah and maybe um, that, I, I guess that's the, the the nicest way of looking at it for him it's pretty good and if the compliment is backhanded, it's not, or not backhanded, but sort of slighted to to also include you too. Uh, it's, I guess it's the best we can get from in '85 at least. Maybe they were a bit more on even terms back in '83, '84. It's already too late, and '85, forget it. Well, you get this, but I, I kind of have this feeling that there, there is a fondness for Stuart and for big country. Oh yeah. That, that, that has prevailed and that is still there today. I think if big country made an official book today, I think they still would get a quote from uh, Bono and maybe it would even be a better quote than what's in this book. Well, there was a wonderful quote from the edge when Stuart passed away. That was really beautiful and touching about Stuart's guitar playing yes. and his, in, the way he inspired the edge and the music of the skids and that kind of thing. So yeah, I don't, I don't say all this as a way to say that Bono is, is, is consciously, yeah, putting Full big country down in any way i just think it's kind of funny and it's it really reflects back on uh i'm sure there was sort of a competition between these types of bands back then i know they didn't want to play something like that up but uh there was a time when really you two as i said big country the alarm they were kind of all vying for that position of biggest uh alternative type of big music band in the world and of course you two yeah just skyrocketed shortly after this and didn't look back but um i think it was more normal in the 80s than we probably remember or, or like to remember that th th there was a strong competition thing and especially in terms of positioning for their videos on mtv 
And one example I always go back to as a Norwegian was the, the pissing competition between Duran Duran and Aha. When uh, Duran Duran had one Bond song and we're on top of the world. And for the next movie, Aha got the song. And Duran Duran said, oh, well, it's kind of like a, a new James Bond. So we need a new soundtrack. And it's uh, kind of all, we, well, it's not as good as ours. And they, they were kind of upset that they were kind of replaced in a way by someone uh, slightly younger and that's uh, it's it's kind of like one of the 80s things I, I saw it all the time but that one sticks out because because uh, I've always followed the highest in the region one of the really interesting things I really did find about this too was kind of the way this book ends and that's with an interview with Ian Grant and Alan Edwards and Alan Edwards was uh, co-managing the band at the time with Ian and they talk a lot about some issues with Stewart that happened at the time, e- even with the skids where he kind of was going to leave the band. And Ian Grant talks about this period where Stewart just uh, wouldn't phone him, wouldn't talk to him, wouldn't return his calls. And I remember reading that and, and really getting a really interesting insight into Stewart that I hadn't even considered before. And of course, in hindsight, now looking back on the span of their entire career and everything that we know now, um, it's kind of, it's, you know, obviously it's a little sad considering what we what we know happened uh, a couple of times even since this and how everything ended. But it's kind of interesting to see that that kind of uh, behavior with Stewart was happening even as early as the Skids and even the first big country album around the Steeltown period where he really just seemed to be a guy who really had a difficult time um, accepting all of the uh, the obligations that were thrust on him as someone who was being made famous and and had this huge album and suddenly had this responsibility to tour it and to promote it here and promote it there. And kind of that lends itself into the Bono discussion because Ian at one point says, he kind of describes two separate types of people. He doesn't mention anyone by name, but he's just giving a generic description of both types of people. One who can who is perfectly acclimated to this life of fame and, and lives for it. And to me, that would clearly be someone like Bono, who's not not someone who's going to have any problem whatsoever touring 200 days of the year and doing interviews here and doing interviews there. And then he talks about another type of person who just can't, isn't really cut out for that kind of thing. And clearly that was Stuart. And I just found that interesting that they would uh, print that as well, really in a book like this. And it certainly in no way does it devalue Stuart as a rock star back then or anything like that, but it was just an interesting, um, insight into into his personality and character back then that i i really remember being kind of struck by and i remember thinking wow they almost broke up no 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 please do not break up <laughs> you know you just started and um so yeah i'm, I'm curious what if you guys are familiar with those passages you know how yeah. you look at those those were my second uh, pick if i ever got that far as far as interesting things in the book and we talked about those bad reviews being brave if anything this is really the brave stuff yeah and 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 being so open and honest and telling it like it is that this was enough Stuart was exhausted he was quitting and suddenly that half year that they did nothing in 86 or 85 rather suddenly makes sense and we're we're kind of been told why that happened in this book and uh, that uh that's one I would be very careful about. I, I, I don't know if even with brevity, you, I don't know if I would put that in there because if someone in the band is going through those issues, 
those are personal. I mean, in my book, they count as personal. The fans don't need to know that someone is exhausted, that someone's having second thoughts. And this goes beyond just wanting to quit and leave the band. It goes into the issues much deeper than I would expect from, from such a book. And you, you look at the book itself. We, we talked about it being heavy on pictures, light on text. And, and it, it gives the, really the impression of a glorified tour book, if you look at it. If you, you leave through it, there, there's lyrics, lots of pictures, and in the end, you get uh, an essay on uh, the problems and issues that Stuart were going through. It doesn't really fit the format of such a book. This is more for a text-heavy book that goes deeply in and analyzes things. So that really surprises me. Yeah, I have a couple of thoughts on that. Um, these days, we're, we're very accustomed to the term branding, in which uh, the image of a rock star or an actor or a movie or a TV show or whatever is very carefully managed so that uh, th there are no, um, no surprises, really. There's only good, good information out there that they want to uh, circulate among the public and to uh, bring in support for whatever they're selling. Um, branding has always existed in one form or another, but I think um, it's a fine art now, whereas back in 1985, it was probably an experiment. Um, you had guys like David Bowie who were very carefully managing their own brand, even though it wasn't called that then. And you had uh, U2, which was on the, the horizon of, uh, of, of a career that was very carefully managed. But this seems like a little window in which there was no branding whatsoever, and the result was this one document that gave us an unvarnished look at the band, including the lead member, who normally today you would only hear good things about. You know, he's very constant and reliable. You might hear that he's uh, exacting or temperamental at the worst. Um, but it's fascinating to think that these guys were all dependent on Stuart being there to do his thing. And in some ways, it seems like he was the most reluctant and most unreliable member of the group, you know, pulling out like every 15 minutes or whatever. And so it must have been incredibly stressful to work under those conditions. Um, now, from Stuart's side of things, I can identify with that at least at, at the level of that I work, which is, um, you know, I've got a, my day job, but then uh, in my off hours, I do projects of my own. And to be uh, a, an independent artist these days, you have to wear two hats. You've got your creator hat, and then you've got your promoter hat. And to me, the creator hat is the one that's more satisfying and more fulfilling because I'm taking stuff out of my own head and turning it into a, a product that other people can absorb. In my case, I, I do a lot of comics, mainly for, uh, for Internet reading. Um, but the other side of that is that if you are an independent artist and you don't have a manager and you don't have someone handling your brand, you have to be your own promoter as well. And that's my least favorite part of the job because it takes me away from what I'd rather be doing, which is the creative part. And I can very easily imagine Stuart having that same mindset. I'm sure he loved writing music. There was probably nothing he liked more. But then he had to put on that other hat and go out and give press interviews and you know deal with the media. And he talked about how repetitive and exhausting that was and how he had to constantly draw the line. Um, 
and that can make you crazy. But you you have to be one in order to be the other. Uh, if you um, if you intend to be successful as a creative person, you need to be able to tell people. You need to be willing and able to tell people that you're there. Otherwise, you'll probably never get noticed because there's just too much noise, too much ambient noise in the media. And so um, I appreciate reading all that and, and uh, having that insight into uh, what kind of person he was. Uh, it probably would have driven me crazy, too, if I was a member of that band. Is Stuart on or off today? <laughs> it was kind of funny how it said Mark just did more sessions. Bruce got depressed. <laughs> right, yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. And as it is, and that's a great way to put it and a, and a great way to look at it because yeah. And as a musician, I, I feel the same way. It's, I, I love to record the music. I love to write it. I love to produce it and put it in a format. And then when it's done, I've always been this way. I've always been like, okay, now what do I do? <laughs> you know, I hate to be the one to promote it. I hate to be the one to try to say, hey, come listen to this. And especially when you're the only, as you say, when you don't have a manager working with you. Now, Stuart, of course, had all that, but they were, in a way, I guess that even makes things even more demanding because he's talked about wanting to have free time and personal time and things were, are being booked for him that he wasn't aware of happening and so clearly he's a he was a guy who really valued his family as well and his family time and his family life and he was married and had kids at this time whereas other of his others of his peers did not so I'm sure that made a difference too and I remember when he was with the skids he wrote some sort of letter to the record mirror and I've been trying to find that letter I still have not found it I've been uh, closing in on it but Apparently, it was printed in this magazine or this this music paper, and he was talking even as early as the skids about how disillusioned he was with the music business. And um, some of the lines that he wrote in that letter I'd, have been printed, and it was talking about what he was encountering had nothing to do with the music, and he was just tired of it and was thinking of quitting the skids. So clearly, this is a problem that, that was with him from the beginning, but we're kind of going off on a tangent here, but I, I agree with you, Svein, that it's it's really fascinating that this was included in such detail in this book. And on one hand, though, I, I can kind of see it if you look at it from this perspective. And that is, it's well known that Stuart at Live Aid decided he was going to stop drinking. And he decided that was going to be the moment he was going to be clean from, from alcohol. And he apparently kept that for many years. And I, I get the feeling that when I look back at this time period of the band as they were, they were preparing to go into the seer, I get a feeling that someone uh, that Stuart was someone who was really rejuvenated, maybe thinking he was putting this kind of stuff that is being talked about here behind him. Um, and maybe, maybe that's just me speculating. Maybe that was part of the reason that it was allowed to be printed and that he's thinking this is the past. Now mm. I can, I can let this be known because I'm moving beyond this now. We're moving into a new era of the band that I feel more confident in and, and ready to, to do something new again. So who knows? But either way, it, it, it's, it's very unlike these types of books to have not only the huge amount of negative reviews, but then these really revealing uh, portraits of, of the main guy in the band. So Yeah, if I can draw a parallel to something that happened later and with Metallica where you had James Hentfield pretty much leaving the band overnight to go and take stock and, and taking care of himself and re-emerging later clean and uh, more open and more willing to embrace what was going on and, and deal with it and also reduce 
certain stresses that came with being in that band and how that was also documented, not just in a book, but in a movie. And uh, maybe if Stuart was going through the same thing, it, it got to a point where he just had to walk out. And it, maybe it happened, you know, James Hetfield was, he literally walked out one day and was gone. No one knew where he was. It took time for the band to figure out what the heck is going on. And maybe someone took uh, session work. Maybe others got depressed. Who knows? It's, it's, it strikes me as on the surface a little bit similar. And, uh, and both of those guys came back. And they did come back, finish an album with some rejuvenation, taking stock of their lives, dropping some bad things, uh, mainly drinking, and, uh, and just putting themselves together. Maybe if that was what was going on... Uh, there was a plan behind putting it in the book. We haven't really talked much about the pictures, and there's really no reason to go too much detail, but there really are some wonderful photos in this and uh, some just great shots throughout, and even some sort of home life shots. One of my favorite shots is the one of Stuart sitting with his son, Callum, and they're stacking up VHS tapes, like making a little tower out of VHS tapes. I think that's just a, a sweet little picture that's in there. But... Um, <laughs> Yeah. So anyway, great book and it obviously still means a lot to people. And um, that kind of brings us full circle here into this audiobook project that we that we talked about at the beginning of the show. So what we're going to be doing is I guess this podcast episode serves as sort of our intro into the next one, which is going to be the audiobook being played in full. So there's not going to be much of any uh, Tom and Svine content in the next piece or the next episode, it's really, we may introduce it very briefly and then we're just going to play it. And John Govea has been gracious enough to, to offer to house the thing on his um, big country info site too. So it's going to be there as well. So, okay. So Tim, I got to ask, what were you thinking about when you first started to organize this project and did things go pretty much as you planned? Or were there any big hurdles that came your way that you might've thought, why did I decide to do this? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Uh, no, there were no actual uh, hurdles, as you say. Um, everything came together brilliantly. Um, I, uh, I I have to thank all the readers for doing such a terrific job. And um, I was really grateful to see so many people sign up so quickly. I mean, within, a, I think, two or three days, I had uh, a nice big group to choose from. Uh, there was a total of 19 of us. From start to finish, wow. um, thirteen from North America, uh, two from Scotland, and four from Britain. Uh, the biggest question I had to ask myself at the beginning was, how do I uh, distribute these people? Um, uh, but I'm used to uh, taking TV scripts and breaking them down and making assignments to artists in my day job, so. It was um, it was a pretty simple matter to to find um, ways to organize the material, uh, but the fact that the bulk of the readers came with uh, without British or Scottish accents meant that we kind of had to give up on the idea of having an accented voice for every speaker. Obviously, they all come from those areas. Um, but I, I love fact, that. You know, I love the way that came out because you do get the accents at times for that you would expect for the part. But it's there's something really cool about hearing like a, a Boston or New York accent reading Stuart Adamson's words. I just I really yeah. enjoyed that. 
Yeah, especially when they read um, very um, very unique Scottish or British terms. <laughs> yes, yes. They, they they really stand out. Like po-face. I, how many times do you use the term po-face? <laughs> right. But I love it when it comes up in, in the text. Um, however, I did have uh, you know six people from the homeland, and so I had to figure out the best way to uh, to apply them. And uh, the structure of the book really kind of solved that problem for me because there were uh, there were several places where we had short quotes from the band members, and then they would go into a longer passage. Uh, to follow up that quote. And so by isolating those quotes, I could sort of cast uh, each band member to a reader. And luckily I had two Scotsmen, and uh, there are two Scotsmen in the band. Um, I had four British readers, and I uh, there were two British members of the band. Um, and then there were all the comments. Um, because the comments were shorter, I, uh, I could distribute those among the readers from Scotland and Britain so that I could uh, at least approximate the accent of the original commenter. Yeah. Uh, hmm. So, for example, um, Bono could be read by somebody who knew what Bono's accent was. or, or uh, there, there are actually com- some pretty obscure people, at least obscure to us now, in that roster, including a couple of football players uh, or soccer players, as we would say on this side of the water, <laughs> uh, and both came from Scotland. And fortunately, I had two Scottish readers who who uh, could read their names or, or read their uh, their comments, and you'd get at least more of a sense of where they came from. Kenny, Kenny. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and uh, I was also really grateful for their help in identifying some of these people. I had no idea who some of them were. Uh, Wikipedia came to my rescue on a couple of them, but uh, we started up a, a big Facebook uh, message thread where I could just throw out a question when it came up, like, who's this guy? And somebody would answer right away. Mm. Uh, so it it turned into um, uh, a real collaborative project, and I just loved it. Every part of it was Surprising and delightful. Um, another thing that came up to, that posed an interesting issue was we had one, exactly one, female volunteer <laughs> and no female voices anywhere in the book. I was going to ask you about this. This is Linda Rossborough, and uh, I thought she did right. a fantastic job with the role that you that you assigned to her. So, yeah, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, she's, uh, she's essentially the host. Yep. She reads all the parts that are uh, either an interviewer asking a question or a, a name of a band a member just before you hear their quote or some other kind of framing device. And uh, I was really happy to have her uh, consent to take that role because I think it, it couldn't have worked out better. Yeah, I agree. You also really went out of your way to, to put music underneath it. So I think we had we had talked a little bit about that in the beginning, like, should there be a lot of music? Or the the initial thought was kind of probably to hold back on the music, but I think as you were doing it, you felt and you found that having more music actually helped things. Yeah, I would like to to mention that, but uh, first I also want to um, to uh, throw the spotlight on one of the readers in particular, uh, Andy Barely. I don't know if you've had much contact with him on the the Facebook page. Oh yeah, know who he is, uh, but. Uh, I believe he's kind of a semi-pro in, in the recording game. He's got a terrific voice. I work with, um, with voice actor uh, 
tracks all the time when I'm editing a TV show together. And um, his vocal quality is outstanding. I really think he needs to get into this game professionally if he hasn't already. Um, but he had access to... Uh, uh, he, he gave us a link to an internet site that had uh, a really great set of instructions on how to read an audiobook. And I think, yeah, I think everybody took that to heart when I suggested they, they use it because um, the recordings, the performances I was getting were all very well paced and everyone had the right breath and the right cadence and really took time with the parts and, and were very conscientious about how it sounded. And so um, I think, of course, everybody deserves credit for that on their own, but I, I have to single out Andy for meritorious service on finding us that information. <laughs> nice. Uh, now, in terms of the music, that was another pleasant surprise. Um, as you mentioned, my first thought was, well, maybe just a, a little bit here and there to introduce a segment or to create a, a divider the way you do in the podcast with your cue. Um, but there, are cer- there were certain things that demanded certain tracks. Um, the, uh, the opening part was just a lucky accident. I was driving home one day and I was playing um, the, uh, I believe it was the uh, deluxe edition of The Crossing where it had the demo version of In a Big Country on it. And as I was listening... I thought this this would be perfect for the, the the introduction you know that starts the whole thing because it's their signature song and it's the first recording we have of it so let's fit it in there and it worked out really well and then uh, shortly after that the first segment of the book talks about the punk era and uh, oh that would be a great place to throw in a skid song which one sounds the most punk Yankee Dollar I'll throw it in there. And it sounded great. It sounded really good, and it uh, brought a life to it that I wasn't expecting. Um, and as I made more connections like that with the uh, the music, I thought, well, it would be kind of a shame to just play a little piece of that because I know as a fan of the music, I'm going to want to hear more of it. And as long as it doesn't interfere with the reader, let it play. You know, let it run its course. Um, so that opened up a whole extra set of responsibilities, which was to, uh, number one, go the catalog all the music that was appropriate to the era the book was published. And then I had to do some editing. And in fact, I had to do a lot of editing to remove vocals because you don't want vocals from Stuart interfering with the reader. And so I went through both of the first two albums and all of Restless Natives and a handful of skid singles and other uh, oddball tracks here and there to cut them down and um, and make them into instrumentals. Yeah. Uh, so that was uh, that was something I never anticipated when I got started, but I really enjoyed it. It gave me a chance to to experience the music on a level I hadn't before. Um, and as a slight departure, I would like to uh, introduce you to a little discovery I made. And I'm probably not the first to discover this, but I have a couple of uh, samples isolated for you here. Um, And uh, one of them is from Restless Natives. The other is a single that comes from later. I'm just going to play them back to back and let you hear what I heard as uh, as I was digging into these. So here we go with the first one. 
All right, so after I heard that, and I was uh, between sessions, it was going through my head, and I would occasionally find myself humming it, and then suddenly going into a whole other song, and here it is. <laughs> I can hear some similarities there, definitely, yeah. No yeah, doubt. They're not, uh, yeah, they're not beat for beat, and they, they're not an exact match, but um, What's it's that, obvious that... That guitar tone sounds very similar in both, yeah. Yeah, the first one was probably the root of the second one. Very interesting. Yeah, so it was really fun to make discoveries like that, and um, you know, it, it allowed me to learn new things about the music at the same time as learning new things about the band. Um. But uh, just getting back to the music approach in general, um, very quickly it became obvious to me that this thing should be wall-to-wall because the music is such a vital component to the the whole presentation. And so it suddenly felt like it was wrong not to have it in there. Uh, So then it became a matter of uh, experimenting, you know, matching up. Uh, a passage of narration to a track of music and getting them to work together. And I've done that sort of thing before in uh, mixes on in post-production on TV shows. I've generally had really good luck with music choices and music editing, and it, uh, it worked out again here too. And, uh, you know, it's absolutely superb material. It probably would have worked in in other combinations as well, but I like to think that a few of them... Uh, were were meant to be like uh, particularly the passage about um uh the stories of touring in America and Japan. <laughs> yeah, those are great. Yeah, th- those were perfect fits. I can't imagine that that any other tracks would have worked out better for those <laughs> and everybody will get to hear that. I was so so lucky that they chose to put a a Japanese sounding music cue in the Restless Native soundtrack. <laughs> right. <laughs> The music really worked for me as well. Uh, that was one of the surprises, to be honest, how well that worked. And also how the different voices came in and really made a narrative alive, as opposed to just having lots of people read their sections. So uh, I think the execution was brilliant. And the, the way it was divided was great. And everybody's effort was great. So as a listener, which is strictly speaking what I am for that episode, I think it's, it's fantastic. I think people will really love it. And hopefully, Tim, I hope that fans of British football will forgive you for referring to Kenny Daglish and Charlie Nicholas as obscure football players. <laughs> <laughs> Their I legendary think, status is cemented. I think I gave the qualifier to that. Yes, you did, and I would be I would be right there with you. The only reason I've ever heard of those guys is in big country-related literature. <laughs> so, so I understand. If I had one other thing to say, it's that uh, if this book was a movie, I think my favorite character would probably be Mark. <laughs> Interesting. Why do you say that? Uh, well, I loved uh, how Tony described their first meeting about how Mark was uh, essentially pushing himself on uh, on the group to try and get in, you know, the Simon Townsend band. Right. And Tony thought he was kind of a weirdo and he was pushy and 
you know, watch out for this guy. He's probably not the one we want and, <laughs> you know, doing everything he could to, to steer people away from him. But then that, that magic moment happened when Mark's stick hit the drum. And I could just imagine if this was a movie, you would cut to the guys in the, in the studio and their heads would start to come up and they'd be looking at each other and maybe some mouths would drop open. And then you'd cut back to Mark hitting the drums and, you know, <laughs> right, the exactly. picture of confidence. If, uh, if a biopic of the, the band was ever made, that's how I would stage that scene. Well, let's not forget the great scene in New Orleans with, that he chronicles so well when he's uh, oh, yeah. uh, just arrested and, and dragged out of his hotel room. <laughs> that, whole, uh-huh. that whole story is absolutely fantastic. Yeah, and, and plus uh, how he describes himself. He's, he's, you know, a perfectionist and he's very technically inclined and... Um, the the way he uh, talks about his father and the the mindset that that instilled in him um, makes it really easy for for you to imagine you know if this guy were your next door neighbor you'd consider him kind of an oddball yeah exactly and yet he has this this brilliance for his art yep that uh, that is beyond reproach and that's a, a mixture in uh, of character of characterization that I really like. Me too. Me too. Great points. But uh, yeah, it, it's a great, it's a great, uh, it's going to be a great piece and it'll be a great episode. So we really appreciate it. And uh, thank you, Tim, for having this idea. Not, not, just, not just for having the idea, but so many people have ideas and never see them through to completion. So uh, the director in you was perfectly suited to this project. So you did a great job putting this together and uh, I can't wait to, to actually finish it and then we can share it with everyone else. Thank you very much. I, I learned early in my career that if you want to keep working, you got to actually finish what you start. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> All right, so that's going to wrap it up for episode 44 of the Great Divide podcast. We are back. I don't know how many, how, what our schedule is going to look like for the next few months, but I can tell you that the next episode is going to be following very closely behind this one as we've already said. So the next episode is going to be this A Certain Chemistry audiobook that we've been dissecting here. We thank Tim again for joining us today and for spearheading this project. It's been a really a good reason for us to, to jump back into this whole podcasting thing. We apologize if we were a little bit rusty in this episode. <laughs> we got, we've had a lot of different uh, things happening from not doing this for a while to Svein returning from a long trip and probably needing some sleep. But uh, hopefully in the editing it will all come out very nicely. But uh, we will be back for the next one and i'm not sure exactly what uh the episode after the audiobook will entail but we do have some interesting plans afoot so and there, there's another word you don't hear too often like po-faced afoot it's always great to use afoot and we will be back with some of those plans that we have um got some people that we want to talk to that have tentatively committed to us and if it comes through it should be make for some interesting shows so we will let you know exactly what's happening. Stay, uh, stay in touch with us on the Great Divide Facebook page. Just go to Facebook, search for the Great Divide Podcast. You can always email us at bigcountrypodcast at gmail.com. And we are glad to be back, and we're glad you guys have stuck around with us. And we'll see you next time. Take care. I'm going to go to sleep now. Yes, please. Are you still there, Svan? Are you alive? Are you drunk? Is your face falling in a plate of something?
I think Svein, <laughs> I think Svein is gone. I think he fell asleep. I think he might have fallen asleep. <laughs> Hello? 